Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and the work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. Our sermon text this week is Esther, chapters 5 and 6. Um, and preaching for us today will be Paul Ramsey, one of our pastors here. Um, but before we read, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may receive with joy what you say to us today. Amen. All right, we got a long one today. Um, so hear the word of the Lord from Esther 5, 9 through six fourteen. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with, with, the, with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before, him, before the king. And it was found in, written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Azurus. <laughs> and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the out of court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who could the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let laurel robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaim him before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned." So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, Sojourn. It's an honor to be with you all. Uh, my name is Paul Ramsey. If I haven't met you yet, it is wonderful to see you this morning. Morning, Tallulah. My daughter was just smiling at me. Good to see you, girl. We're continuing our series through the book of Esther this week. Uh, we've been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that often opposes the people of God. We've been considering what it looks like to learn faithful living under the rule of a government that sometimes makes decisions that concern us. 
to live alongside neighbors who may or may not be more or less hostile to the Christian faith. And to do this all the while, seeking the welfare of our neighbors and our nation, trusting that regardless of what may be happening in the world, God is continuing to advance his kingdom and his plan for the renewal and restoration of all things. As I was studying for the sermon today, uh, considering Haman and Mordecai and Esther and the king, I was reminded of a conversation I was having a couple of weeks ago with a couple of pastors about loneliness. One of the pastors that I was talking with has just recently made the transition into full-time counseling ministry. And he was talking about how our society is facing a significant loneliness, loneliness problem. Of course, this has certainly been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, but the rise in loneliness actually predates the pandemic. And the pastor's comments resonated with me uh, personally. Pastoring can be a lonely calling. You may be familiar with the idea of feeling alone in a room full of people, and that is actually the experience of a lot of pastors a lot of the time. There's no shortage of phone calls, texts, emails, but often you can go a week or sometimes weeks on end without any of those engagements being really about you. It's a huge honor to be a pastor, but it can feel isolating and lonely at times. My wife and I have been talking for years about the risks and challenges of loneliness in ministry and the importance of pursuing true friendships. And I'm grateful that here at Sojourn uh, and in this season of my life, I don't feel lonely. I feel very well known and cared for. Um, but when I zoom out from my life as a pastor, another reason that this pastor's comments about loneliness being a growing problem in our society is that it resonates also with a lot of conversations that I've had with many of you and with many of my friends and family, even outside of Sojourn. With social media putting forth images of our friends and acquaintances being so well-traveled, well-put-together, good-looking, and happy, it can sometimes feel like we're the ones who are missing out on the fun and success that is being enjoyed by everyone else. In a transition that we've been experiencing at Sojourn, many of our members have moved from the post-college years into marriage and some even having children. And this has led to social dynamics can, that can feel isolating both for young parents and for the friends of those young parents who have felt those friendships change. And in a polarized cultural moment, politically speaking, it can be hard to feel that you can bring your real thoughts and opinions to bear in your relationships about things like politics and social justice for fear that you'll offend someone or be ostracized for your views. And this is especially isolating given that politics seems to be at the forefront of everyone's minds these days. And so this pastor, as we were talking, said, he went so far as to say that all of us are struggling with this problem. In one form or another, all of us are dealing with this increasing sentiment of loneliness in our society, especially considering the effects of the pandemic, but not just because of that. There is this sadness, this sense of disappointment that life is not what we thought it would look like right now. All of us are dealing with it differently. Some are dealing with it with optimism and hope. Things are gonna get better soon. Others are dealing with it with cynicism. Some are dealing with it with feelings of sadness. Others are dealing with it with feelings of anger. For some, it is right here at the surface and for others, it is tucked away in a quiet hidden place. But because we're all dealing with things differently, we're often dealing with them separately which only contributes to feelings of loneliness and isolation. And while this sermon about Haman from the book of Esther is not going to be an answer to the problem of loneliness, I do think that as we'll see today's passage, which looks at God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of disappointing circumstances through seemingly ordinary means, gives us an ingredient, at least one ingredient to a life together that can with God's help begin to turn the tide against this loneliness. And so here's what we're going to do today. I have a very simple outline. We're gonna look first at the story that we're presented with in our passage. Then we're gonna pull out a couple of observations and then we're gonna pull out some points of application and then we'll be done. And so let's begin by looking at the story. For starters, I wanna catch us up briefly. We've been going through Esther for a few weeks and so I wanna catch us up briefly with where we've been in this story and in particular, who we've met. At the beginning, we met King Ahasuerus. His Greek, or excuse me, yes, his Greek name was Xerxes. 
the king of the enormous kingdom of Persia, which ran from modern-day India all the way over to Northeast Africa in Ethiopia. The story of Esther takes place soon after the deportation and exile of the Jews um, in the city of Susa. This would be modern-day Iran, which is where King Ahasuerus' palace would have been. At this kingdom-wide feast, the king's first wife, or at least his previous wife, Queen Vashti, refuses his invitation to come to dinner. And so he kicks her out of, at, at the council of his counselors, he kicks her out of his, he's, she's no longer his wife. And the king calls his counselors to bring women before him so he can choose a replacement wife for Queen Vashti. Mordecai, who's a Jew, is bringing up Esther, the daughter of his uncle, uncle who had passed away. He had taken Esther into his home. She had become a daughter to him. And Esther as Mordecai brings her into Susa, wins everyone's favor as she walks by, including the king, and she, he takes her to be his queen. Soon after this, in a story that's significant in today's passage in chapter three, Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, which is a way of saying that he holds a position in the political administration of Persia, hears of a plot to kill the king, and Mordecai tells Queen Esther, who passes it on to the king, saving the king's life. And so the king has Mordecai's name written down in the official royal uh, chronicles of things that happened in Persia. After this, in chapter three, we meet Haman, who is the main character of our passage for today. He's promoted to be the right-hand man to the king and everyone in the king's gate, everyone in in the political administration bows down and pays homage to Haman, except for Mordecai. We're not told exactly why, It wouldn't have been due to Jewish religious reasons. It may have been some personal distaste, but most likely it was due to racial or tribal enmity. In previous weeks, we've talked about how Mordecai was a Benjaminite, a Jew, and Haman was an Agagite. These were two peoples who did not get along, to say the least. But for whatever reason, we're also told about in previous weeks that Mordecai's decision not to honor Haman was unwise. Haman was filled with fury and he plots the destruction of the Jews, leading, to a, leading the king, Haman leads the king, he offers the king to pay, like, like Haman pays with his own money, to see to the annihilation of the Jews in Persia. Mordecai tears his clothes in repentance. He tells Esther, you need to go in and talk to the king and plead with him on behalf of your people. But this is tantamount to Mordecai asking Esther to risk her life. Because there's this rule in Persia, as you recall, that in order to enter the king's presence, you have to be beckoned. If you enter the king's presence without being invited, then the penalty for that is death, unless the king holds out his royal scepter to save your life. Esther agrees to do this, though. She agrees to risk her life, saying, if I die, I die, but I must plead on behalf of my people. And thankfully... She wins favor in the king's sight and she approaches and touches the scepter that he has extended to her and the king offers her a request. That's the point that Esther takes center stage in the story of Esther, the the moment. This is the passage that Dodds preached on last week. Esther takes center stage and she won't leave center stage for the rest of the book. But the king gives her this request and she invites the king and his number two guy, Haman, to this feast. And so she invites them to the feast. They're sitting down at this feast. And this is the passage that Dodds finished with last week. The king says, okay, now what is your request? And she says, she delays. She doesn't take the opportunity. She waits. She says, come to a feast that I'll prepare tomorrow. I'm going to have another one. And I'll ask, I'll make my request known there. And then they all leave the banquet. Which brings us to our passage for today. We pick up in our passage for today with a very pleased Haman. He's headed home from this private banquet with the king and queen, and he is pretty happy for himself. Of course, he has reason to be. He's the number two man in all of Persia, number two only to the king, and he has just been invited by the queen to another private banquet with the king and queen. So Haman is pumped until he walks out the door, and he sees Mordecai, who again fails to honor Haman, fails to stand up out of his seat and bow down to Haman and it fills Haman with wrath. He's seething with anger, but he feigns indifference. He keeps himself under control and he goes home, sending for his friends and his wife. And when he gets his crew together, he runs through this impressive litany of boasts, money, sex, power, you name it, Haman has it. 
He talks about all of his riches, all of his children, all of his promotions and the status of being the right-hand man to the king. Even the queen loves me, he says in verse 12, but it's not enough. All of this is nothing to him, he says in chapter five, verse 13. All of this is nothing to him with Mordecai still in his position. And let's see what the counselors have to say when Haman comes and boasts and then says, but it's nothing to me. Mordecai is still there. What do his counselors tell him? Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And chapter five ends with this idea of pleasing Haman who has the gallows made. He plans to have Mordecai executed first thing in the morning. And now Mordecai was of course, disrespectful towards Haman, but as modern Americans, we might have a hard time seeing how this would merit the death penalty. If you put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Persian, however, this was a pretty clear-cut case. We've talked about this in previous weeks. Haman probably thought something like this. King Hasuerus, you know Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate? Well, ever since you promoted me, he's persistently disobeyed your explicit command and refused to acknowledge my authority. And as I'm sure you agreed, O king, we can't permit a member of your court to disregard your command and undermine your government. So listen, I've constructed a gallows and I want your permission to put Mordecai to death. Sound good? This would have been an open and shut case. Night has fallen on the first of Esther's feasts. And when the morning dawns, Mordecai is going to be executed. However, we get to chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. This verse is in many ways the turning point of the entire book of Esther. It just so happens that on this night, in between the two feasts of Esther, the king could not sleep. Let's see what happens. On that night, the king could not sleep and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh to of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So if you remember that just a few minutes ago, I mentioned that earlier in the book of Esther, back in chapter two, I think I said chapter three earlier, it was back in chapter two, we were told about how Mordecai saved the king's life by revealing this plot against the king. And it had been written in the King's book of Chronicles. And so here we are, this is five years later. That had happened in the seventh year of the King's reign. And this was now, fast forward, we're in the 12th year of the King's reign. So five years earlier, this had happened. And it is on this night in between Esther's two feasts with the fate of the Jewish people hanging in the balance, with Mordecai's own fate hanging in the balance. If you'd permit the pun, the King just so happens to have a sleepless night. He just so happens to ask for the royal records to be read. His servants just so happened to read from the page where Mordecai's loyalty was recorded. And Haman at that very moment just so happens to walk in. Let's keep reading. Right after the king discovers that nothing has been done to honor Mordecai, he hears someone in the court, asks who it is. It's Haman, who we know has come to talk to the king about hanging Mordecai. And the king lets Haman in, verse six. The king says to Haman, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, you can almost hear Haman savoring these words. He repeats the king's words back to him. Haman says, he just knows these words about him. For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman finishes this glorious speech. And then the king says to Haman, you almost feel bad for him, hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned, 
Then verse 11, Haman took the robes and the horse. He dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It might seem interesting that Haman requests to wear the royal robe and ride the king's horse. Doesn't really make much sense to us. Why would he not have asked for money or for land or something like that? But this request coming from Haman would have done two things. It would have honored the king. I wanna be honored in a way that honors you. And second, it would have reinforced Haman's relationship with him. As one writer puts it, for Haman, no other honor was left in the kingdom to him but to partake of the king's own power, prestige, and stature. A modern equivalent would be uh, as if the U.S. president sent Air Force One to pick up one of his dignitaries and transport them from place, one place to another. As the passage ends, though, Haman is not the one who receives this honor. Instead, it's Mordecai, his enemy. Haman had come into the king expecting to secure Mordecai's execution, and in crushing humiliation, he walks away as the one expected to carry out his enemy's exaltation instead. And so in summary, here's what we see in our passage. Haman comes out of the feast with Esther and the king full of joy until he sees Mordecai failing to honor him once again. And then at the recommendation of his wife and friends, he plans to kill Mordecai, at which point he goes to bed pleased. That night, the king had trouble sleeping and had the chronicles read to him and stumbling on Mordecai's story, he resolves to honor Mordecai. When Haman comes in to discuss his plan to execute Mordecai, the king speaks first and invites him to help him thank someone he delights to honor. Thinking it's him, Haman basically says what he wants himself. I want to be publicly shown to be the king's best friend. But in the end, the king was talking about Mordecai and far from successfully getting Mordecai hanged, Haman finds himself parading around the streets, proclaiming Mordecai's glory. There's a lot here. So let's dig in and make just a few observations. There's three that I'd like to make this morning. For the first observation, look with me at chapter five, verse 13. Haman, at the end of this litany of boasts, says this. He says, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. I wanna look for a moment at the outcome of human pride. If there ever were a case, uh, uh, excuse me, if there ever were a case study for a fool according to the book of Proverbs in the Bible, Haman is certainly it. Just a few examples. Proverbs 12, 16 says this. It says, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. That's a proverb. The prudent ignores an insult. Just like back in chapter three here in Esther, as soon as Haman lays eyes on Mordecai, he is incensed. Haman is this man who is at the top of his game, right? He is number two in the kingdom, second only to the king. He has wealth, he has status. He's coming from a private invite-only feast with the king and queen. If there ever were a time that someone could turn aside and, and look aside from an insult, Haman would have been it. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see Haman's vexation at once. He fixates on Mordecai. He can't let go of Mordecai. Here is this man, Mordecai, whose death has actually already been secured by Haman's plot against the Jews, and Haman can't wait for that. All this is worth nothing to me, Haman says, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He cannot look past this insult. Second example, Proverbs 16, 18 says this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride cometh before the fall. There's four Proverbs that say exactly the same thing. Pride comes before the fall. And Haman here is absolutely blinded by his pride. Things look spectacular for him. This is years in the making Haman may even be thinking that he's doing all of these things for the king's honor and for the glory of the kingdom, but his wealth, his power, his position have become all about him. And in his self-centeredness, he has become blind to all else. He makes assumptions without even realizing it. When the king asks about honoring someone, Haman thinks to himself, how could he possibly be thinking of anyone other than me? Further embarrassing here is the fact that this practice of a king honoring faithful servants 
would have been common practice for King Xerxes and for any ancient Near Eastern king. Haman would have watched the king honor servant after servant after servant over the course of his time with King, uh, king Ahasuerus. So even if Haman was the most faithful servant of all, he would have been foolish to assume that he is the only one who the king could have been thinking about when it came to honoring him. But blinded by his pride, Haman misses it. He essentially answers the king's question with a premature acceptance speech. Picture someone standing up at the Oscars and walking straight toward the front. Oh, I know who this one's for. King, I'll take a ride on your horse, please. I wanna wear your robe. I wanna watch, I wanna listen to someone proclaiming how awesome I am through the city streets. He's blinded by his pride, which comes before the fall. And just one more proverb. Proverbs 20, 18 says this, says plans are established by counsel by wise guidance, wage war. As a protection against pride and the foolishness that accompanies pride, the Proverbs encourage us to surround ourselves with wise counselors. Even outside of Proverbs, when we look at the Psalms, the whole book of Psalms begins with Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Surrounding yourselves with wise counsel is of tantamount importance. Looking at the counselors that Haman surrounds himself with, that is not what we see. After he boasts about his greatness and then fixates his fragile ego on Mordecai, this supposedly lesser man who was apparently ruining his whole life, Haman's counselors look at him and rather than cooling him down and calling him to wisdom, say, you know what? You're right, Mordecai, or excuse me, you're right, Haman. You have to kill him. They pour gasoline on his pride. They fuel his ego saying, go protect it. Go and make sure Mordecai dies. If we think about what we see in Haman in this story, we see the absolute insatiability of pride, of greed. For the proud, there is never enough. Just like Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan is always whispering, hey, just one more thing. God is holding out on you. Just go get that one more thing that you don't have. Why stop now? There's always more that you can get. Mordecai's eventual death isn't enough for Haman. It needs to be public. It needs to be authorized by the king. It needs to be on a spectacular gallows, 75 feet tall. And it needs to be now. Haman is so eager to go to the king to talk about hanging Mordecai that while we're not exactly sure about the time of day, we do know that Haman arrives much earlier than anyone else would have been expected in the king's gate, prompting the king to say, who's that in the court? Chapter six, verse four. Haman's eager haste leads him to pursue the demise of his enemy so urgently that he finds himself in the exact moment that ultimately begins his own unraveling. This is the first observation I want to make. In Haman, we see the eventual outcome of unchecked human pride. Haman's self-obsession makes him an emotional roller coaster with a fragile ego. The stronger he gets, the weaker he gets. Up and down, his emotions go, depending not on something internal, but everything around him that he has no control over. Haman surrounds himself, not with people who will challenge him, but with people who will affirm him. And in his self-centeredness, the satisfaction of human pride and his demand for honor and respect outweighs even the value of human life. For the second observation, look with me at chapter six, verse one. I mentioned this earlier, but I wanna make a literary observation. Chapter six, verse one says, on that night, the king could not sleep. And to make a, a literary observation, the whole structure of the book of Esther zooms us in on this verse, which is actually quite interesting. One commentator named Karen Jobes points out that there is this beautifully intricate structure to the book of Esther. While the event of Esther taking center stage in going into the king's chamber and risking her life, that in many ways seems like the turning point to the plot of the, narrat the narrative plot of the book. The structure of Esther actually doesn't point to that event, it points here to this point at which the whole narrative changes. You may have heard the term chiasm. It's a structure loved by biblical authors to show emphasis. One ma major kind of chiasm involves beginning and ending with parallel statements. 
and then gradually working inward to a point of emphasis. And while there's a lot of layers in this structure in the book of Esther that make this emphasis even more emphatic, consider simply the feasts. You remember the book of Esther begins with a pair of feasts. And the book of Esther also ends with a pair of feasts. And right in between these feasts, there's also a pair of feasts, Esther's two feasts. In between Esther's two feasts, we see Mordecai dishonor Haman. And then in a plot twist that functions as the opposite mirror image, we see Haman honor Mordecai. And right in between these two events, at the heart of this structure of the book of Esther, the king has a sleepless night. Everything builds to this point and only now begins the unraveling of the plot against the Jews. And it's a seemingly insignificant moment. You might think that the turning point in the narrative would involve the protagonist, Esther, but it doesn't. The king simply had a fitful night of sleep. The tone is strong and the implication is clear. Who is in control here? Not even Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, with all the power of the Persian empire at his disposal, not even this king is in control of what's happening. Haman's carefully laid plans were turned against him simply because the king had a sleepless night. The implication is so clear that one of the Greek translations of the Old Testament translates this verse, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. You see, even though God is very much in the background of the whole book of Esther, he is ultimately the one who is in control, moving things toward his intended ends. And it may seem like a coincidence. But think about all the coincidences. Esther just so happens to be chosen over all the women of the empire. Mordecai just so happens to discover a plot to assassinate the king. Haman's planned genocide just so happens to be delayed 11 months. The king just so happens to have a sleepless night. The king just so happens to ask for the royal chronicles to be read on account of his sleeplessness. His servants just so happen to come to the story of Mordecai's unrewarded loyalty and faithfulness from five years earlier. And in that very moment, Haman just so happens to walk in. There's a book on prayer by a, a, a pastor named E.M. Bounds. And he's talking about speaking with people who aren't Christians, non-believers about prayer. And the accusation that is often leveled against him, you know, he talked about prayer wherever he went and people would ask questions and they would say, it seems like you're just identifying times that you prayed for things that happened and they just coincidentally happened. So Ian Bounds, these non-Christians are talking to him and saying, it seems like you're just praying for everything and then the things that work, you call that answered prayer. It's just coincidence. And Ian Bounds' response, I, should have, I couldn't find the book to find the actual quote, but he says something along the lines of, his answer is, you know, it may be true, but I just find that those coincidences happen a lot more when I pray than when I don't. Clearly, we are not supposed to see the events of the book of Esther as coincidence. The second observation that I wanted to make is that with what appears to be a seemingly ordinary and insignificant detail, everything changes. The focus is taken off the people in this story and instead is brought to this seemingly coincidental event It puts the Lord as the one who is in control over all of these events. As one commentator, Karen Jobes again, put it. She says, previously in Israel's history, God had used mighty miracles to deliver his people and to fulfill his promises. In the story of Esther, God was using the ordinary events of life to realize his covenant promises to his people. He used even seemingly insignificant events, such as the king's sleepless night and the decisions of less than perfect people to fulfill nevertheless the promises of his ancient covenant. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. She finishes, God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night because a man would not bow to his superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. God's purposes are moving forward through seemingly insignificant events. And the third observation is this. 
comes right at the end of our passage. Chapter six, verses 10 and 11. It says this, then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. And so Haman takes the robes and the horse and he dresses Mordecai, leads him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Here's the third observation. When the narrative tension turns in this story, when the narrative tension turns, when the buildup, you know, the buildup of, of Mordecai's failure to uh, honor Haman and this plot against the Jews, this plot against uh, Mordecai's own life, all this plot is building. And when it turns, it is not simply resolved. When the plot turns, it's not simply resolved. It is resolved through reversals. If you think about it, God could have seen fit to simply thwart Haman's plan. Haman could have been stopped and the status quo could have been preserved. Instead, however, there is this great reversal of fortune. Instead of Mordecai's life being spared, Mordecai is honored. Haman not only loses his power, but he himself is destroyed. Later on, instead of being destroyed, plot spoiler, the Jews are not merely delivered from death, but they are empowered through the high ranking of Esther and Mordecai in Persia. In chapter nine, verse one of Esther, this theme is explicitly stated. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews were not just delivered. They gained mastery over those who hated them. This is a great reversal. And the theme of reversal is a theme that runs through the book of Esther and indeed runs through the whole Bible. This, of course, points forward to and prepares God's people for the great reversal, Christ on the cross. God had pronounced a sentence of death on account of human sin. And then Christ came to die in our place. Christ through his death though, didn't just secure the undoing of death, but he secured for us blessing beyond belief, not just life untouched by death, but life in abundance, characterized by joy and love and peace and fullness and wholeness. And like this turning point in Esther at the time, what Christ did was seemingly insignificant. He was crucified in front of perhaps a couple hundred people, maybe a few thousand. In an isolated part of the world, a zealot was executed for claiming to be the son of God. Could have been, should have been just a blip in human history. Centuries later, millennia later, billions have been saved. The reversal of sorrow, not just to status quo, but to joy, started with a few people and exploded and multiplied ever since. As I move into application, this is so critical for us. Is it not true, Christian, that God has worked in your own life through seemingly insignificant events and decisions? Think for a moment about the chain of events that led to the moment when you came to know the Lord. I had a friend share with me one time that he was putting away the dishes as a child and he looked at a Tupperware and seeing an empty Tupperware, the gospel sank into his heart. He realized his emptiness and his need for the filling of God. The gospel sunk in and he was saved looking at a Tupperware. In my own story, the chain of events, my brother's soccer coach was the first person who ever invited me to church. I don't even remember how it happened. My high school girlfriend asked me to come to choir practice one day at her church. And my freshman year of college, I smelled barbecue and came over because I wanted free food. And that's what got me into a small group that six months later, inside that small group, I was saved. What about your life? What was it for you? Was it a conversation with an acquaintance or with a friend? Were you flipping through channels or watching YouTube videos? Did you pick up a book by accident? How did you come to know the Lord? What about your life? If you're married, how did you come to meet and marry your spouse? 
Why are you living where you are? Why do you have a job? Why did you get fired that one time? Think back on the seemingly unimportant and insignificant, how could God possibly use this moments in your life? And consider that those have brought you exactly to where you are today. In my own life, in the moment, so many times, usually in the moment, more often than not, most often I have no idea what God is doing. But I have a conviction that is increasingly bolstered by experience that God is behind everything and he is working everything in my life and each of your lives in accordance with his purposes and with his will. When was the last time you thought about these moments in your life? When was the last time you shared about those stories in your life? And not just, not just those moments that led to your coming to know the Lord. Well, that's a beautiful story and testimony. I have a friend who's a pastor who uses the, the phrase fresh bread testimony. Sharing stories with one another is one of the most powerful ways that we can encourage not just one another, but ourselves. Sharing stories about how God used seemingly insignificant things in our lives to bring about his purpose for you and for those around you. Fresh bread testimony is pulling things fresh out of the oven. This is what God has done in my life this week. When was the last time you paused and just told a story to a person in your parish, person in your life, person who doesn't know Jesus? It can be tempting to retreat from a world which is filled with pain and suffering and uncertainty. But God's plan is to be right in the middle of everything. If you think about this for just a moment, the promised land was the intersection of three continents. I'm getting this observation from a pastor named Kosuke Koyama. He's a Japanese guy who wrote a book called Three Mile an Hour God. And it's a series of meditations on scripture talking about how we want to move so fast and we want everything to happen so quickly, but God works at three miles an hour. It's the speed of human walking. So he made this observation. Think about the promised land being at the intersection of three continents right? Europe, Asia, Africa. It wasn't a remote island. God's people are always in the midst of the nations on purpose. Why is Esther here in Persia? Why is Mordecai here? Because God is moving his plan forward. In the middle of the nations, in the middle of a world that seems like a miry bog, our minds go to Psalm 40, where God delivers us from the miry bog and puts our feet upon the rock. God is placing Esther and Mordecai in their positions so that the nations would see and know and fear their God. Koyama writes this. He said, promised life then means intersected life. It is not an isolated life. It is a life busily engaged in encounters. It is a life not at home on the museum shelf. It is on the street life. And the world can be a dangerous place. As soon as Esther identified herself to the king as a Jew, she came under Haman's edict of death. But God was working. Instead of choosing the way of fear, the way of isolation, the way of fleeing, Esther trusts and models what it looks like to live in humble submission to God's kingdom and to God's pace and God's timing. If you think about it, we have just spent some time looking at chapter six, verse one. We've looked at how God uses this seemingly insignificant event to turn around all things. Where is Esther right now? Esther is at home wondering whether her plan is going to work. She doesn't know yet whether the plot against the Jews is going to be ended or whether when she speaks up and she identifies herself as a Jew, she will fall under that same edict from Haman. We too can trust that God is worth trusting, worth hoping in, that we can say things that along the lines of what Esther said, though I die, I, I may die. If I die, I die. Trusting that God's deliverance will come even if it is through death. And listen, not everything is pleasant. Esther and the Jews are delivered. It's a wonderful story of God's faithfulness in delivering his people. Many Jews throughout history were not, even recently. Stephen, the disciple Stephen in the book of Acts was given miraculous words from God and he was stoned to death. Even after God gave him words, many of the apostles themselves were martyred. Christ himself, when he prayed to God saying, Lord, if it be thy will, 
let this cup pass from me, was nailed to a cross and died. To borrow an illustration from Louis Giglio, um, who's a pastor, he was talking about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not fear, I shall not want. And he goes and he talks, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. So Louis Giglio, this pastor is talking about this verse. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And he says, we like to think of God as a God who sees us in the fire and puts on those uh, heat resistant, long barbecue pit, like pit master gloves, reaches into the fire, grabs us out and puts us to the side. But that's not what God does. Instead of doing that, God comes and meets us in the fire, meets us in the valley, in the presence of our enemies. You remember the story of Daniel, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the fire. And they say, very similar to Esther. Remember what they said? They said, if, uh, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you. God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego look at King Nebuchadnezzar and say, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not gonna bow down to your gods. And then just a few moments later, when they get thrown in the fiery furnace, the king looks in and says, look, I see four men walking around. Didn't we put in three men? God joins Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire and they emerge unscathed. Our mind goes again to Jesus on the cross saying, if it be thy will, Father, take this cup from me. We so often want God to pull us out of what we're going through. We so often want deliverance to look the way that we want it to look. But while we can be sure that deliverance will come, it may not look exactly like what we, look, what we want it to look like. As we engage the world around us, as we live in the intersection between the nations, we will see that God is not just faithful to deliver us from what is out there, but he's also faithful to deliver us from what is in here. If we think back to Haman, consider Haman. Where Haman is in the epitome of pride is actually not that far from where you and I would be outside the grace of God. Please don't hear me exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. I'm being serious. This is you and me. This is what happens when pride goes unchecked. You may not be a murderous and angry person, but consider the words of Jesus. Jesus says, he who hates his brother has basically killed him. He who hates his brother is a murderer. This warning from Jesus is for us too. But when Jesus says that to us, his way is not by way of condemnation. It's by way of invitation. Jesus says, what are you mad about? Why are you so angry? Bring it to me. What does engaging gently with that thing that you're mad about look like rather than violence? And I think as Christians, Sojourn, if we're honest, we have real things to deal with in this regard, inside this room, even before we get out to the world around us. It's not one than the other. We don't need to clean up ourselves and then go out and then as a clean church go out and talk about it, but we need to learn how to talk with one another. We need to learn how to engage with one another. We need to learn what to do when we get angry with one another. In this story, we see a key foundational element to our engagement with one another. God is in control. You will forget it, so remind yourself. I will forget it, so please remind me. We need to be constantly reminding one another that if God is in control, these things which we could divide over don't need to be things that we divide over. We can engage with things that are sad and actually cry without losing hope. We can engage with things that are hard and come to real disagreement without parting ways. All the while looking at one another and saying, in the words of Mr. Rogers, I like you, even though we disagree. In our current cultural moment, some of the greatest conflicts of our time are ideological. 
the possibility of someone being able to order the genocide of an entire population like Haman or being able to plot the death of a personal enemy, while that's not impossible, that's far less likely today than it was 2,500 years ago. And it's far less likely here in the Houston Heights than it is in some other parts of the world. That's not to say that physical violence has been totally eradicated because for certain populations and in certain situations, that threat is very real. But I want to consider for a moment the fact that most of the great conflicts in our lives here sojourn are ideological. They are in the realm of ideas and opinions and dialogue. We aren't any less angry in the 21st century than people were in the past. Our anger just looks different. Like Haman, we can have a hard time overlooking an insult. Like Haman, we can be so self-absorbed that we don't even listen to the people around us. Like Haman, we can be tempted to make assumptions about what other people think. But unlike Haman, we can look around at one another and see a room full of wise counselors ready to invite us towards humility and away from pride. We can see a family around us ready to learn alongside one another what it looks like to engage with gentleness rather than anger and violence. If I had one encouragement with you, learning from the story of Haman, as we engage in dialogue together, Sojourn, it would be this. Doubt your anger. There is a place for anger in the Christian life. But anger is what we can consider a downstream emotion. It is super easy to put in the water and just immediately flow downstream. We love being angry. But what would it look like to doubt our anger? If our brother or sister says something that we deeply disagree with and we find ourselves tempted to anger, how could this person possibly say this? How could this person possibly do this? What if we doubted that for a moment and instead said, I could be wrong, help me understand. And when we say that, if we feel ourselves faking it, then probably invite a brother or sister in to help you think through why you're having a hard time exercising that level of humility. But brothers and sisters, as we think about life in an intersected world that is increasingly connected and at the very same time feeling increasingly isolated, we have a real opportunity because of our confidence in who God is and what Christ has done to reconcile us one to another to consider what gentle engagement looks like rather than violence, to consider what loving forbearance looks like rather than rash judgment. And as we lean into one another, leaning on the confidence that we have that God is in control of all things, we can learn how to engage with one another in a way that makes this room feel a little less isolated and lonely than the other rooms that we live in for the, in the rest of our lives. So may it be so. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the book of Esther and for this passage. Thank you for loving us the way that you do, for your gentleness with us and for giving us this story that is such an encouragement that you are in control, that you are over all things. You hold all things in your hand and that we need not try to seize control of big things or small things because we can trust that you are in control. Help us cultivate a communal humility that looks like the spirit of gentleness that you demonstrated so well in your life, Lord Jesus. Help us to consider what patient trust looks like in you as we engage with the real threats around us in the world. Help us to learn what it looks like to live faithful lives, trusting in you, trusting in one another, loving our neighbors well, without fear that things are falling apart. And help us to be, as time goes on, better and better lovers of you and lovers of one another. With your spirit's help as we engage with your word. Thank you for our time together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.